So many aspects of the Buddhist teachings about the nature of suffering and the possibility of freedom resonate with our common sense understanding of ourselves and of the world. We see this in the importance of non-harming as being the basic moral principle of living together, whether locally, in community, or globally, that this is the foundation of morality. It's the understanding that all things in our lives are changing, and that the more we hold on, the more we're attached, the more we grasp at that which in its nature changes, the more we suffer. So this is not difficult to understand, even though we don't completely put it into practice. But there's one aspect of the teachings that is not very accessible to our common sense. It really offers a profoundly different view of the world, profoundly different view of ourselves. one aspect of the teachings that really challenges our entire worldview. And it's the understanding that makes the Buddha's enlightenment such an extraordinary event among all the cultures of awakening. And this is the teaching and the realization of anatta, or selflessness. The understanding of the realization of the insubstantial nature of all experience. In some way, this teaching or understanding of anatta is like the jewel of the Buddhist teachings. It's the jewel of liberation. As our mindfulness gets stronger through our practice, we begin to discover that we are not who we thought ourselves to be. We're not the body. We're not the thoughts. We're not emotions. Not even awareness itself. We begin to see that the deeply rooted sense of I, which is a strongly conditioned pattern of understanding in our mind, we begin to see that this deeply rooted pattern or conditioning of self is a mental construct. It's a mental fabrication. When we see this, when we begin to see that self, the notion of self is a concept, it's both a great surprise in one way, And it's also a great relief because we see that all those rather troubling aspects of our personalities, as well as the wonderful qualities, don't belong to anyone. I think one of my favorite expressions of the Buddhist teachings, very simple, is from a Sri Lankan monk who said, no self, no problem. (laughs) And we see that everything we're calling self, all the elements of of our experience, are simply appearances arising out of conditions and passing away. So tonight I'd like to speak a bit about how the mind creates this sense of self, this illusion of self and how we can be free of it, how we can liberate this notion of I and of mine. In order to understand how the notion of self is created, we need to really investigate and look a bit at the nature of concepts and how concepts play such a powerful role 
in our view of and experience of the world. So just in our usual, ordinary way of living, we have a certain experience, a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a sensation, whatever. We have a certain experience, and very quickly the mind creates a concept to describe it. And then, in many ways, we are limited by that concept. And the concept, in fact, then alters or changes our relationship to the experience itself. So just as an example of this, I'd like to tell you about my one and only miracle. This was, did, I, did I tell you my miracle story? <laughs> this actually happened. <laughs> it was in the late 70s. I had just really begun teaching, you know, teaching for a few years, and we were at a retreat in Northern California in the Redwoods. And I was teaching now home with Sharon, my colleague Sharon Salzberg. And we were sitting just in, you know, a room before going into the morning sitting. And I was talking with her. And just in the course of the conversation, quite suddenly, it's like out of my mouth, there was like a burp of smoke and ash. So I was just sitting and... (laughs) There was this cloud of smoke and ash, which just... And it was kind of a sweet-smelling ash, and it was very strange. So we're looking at one another, you know, what was this about? So we didn't know, really. And we went to the sitting and just carried on. It was a bit of a mystery. A week later... The two weeks later, we were in Bucksport, Maine, the other side of the country. Just it was, This was the first three-month retreat. So this was like 27, 28 years ago. I had gone into the town in Bucksport to cash a check at the bank. I'm standing in front of the teller. <laughs> and the same thing happened. <laughs> she looked at me. It was a pretty odd moment. So then I got really curious, like, what is this? You know? so I started asking around, you know, people who I thought might have some explanation. And at that time, I don't know if some of you may remember, Ramdas was uh, living in New York with his teacher at that time, this woman named Joya, who had all kinds of, you know, different kinds of psychic abilities or powers, I'm not exactly sure. And friends of mine were in that scene, so I said, could you please ask her, you know, what is this? And so they described, and she said, oh, this is the, there's a saint in India called Sai Baba, and he's known for producing this holy ash, it's called verbuti. So Joy said, oh, that's the verbuti of Sai Baba. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and some weeks later, Munindraji, uh, I was with Munindraji, and I was describing this experience to him, and he said, oh, it is the fire element. Okay. <laughs> and then sometimes after that, I was with Deepama, you know, who was this extraordinary yogi and, and great powers of mind, and she heard me tell this story, and she said, oh, you must have some disease. <laughs> So from the holy ash of Sai Baba (laughs) to having some disease, the experience was the same. The experience was what it was. And all of these different concepts, we can kind of put on it and then be very elated or very depressed, depending on what the concept is. We can see this tendency in our minds and in our lives to solidify and reify our experience through the power of the concepts that we put onto them. 
We can see this in many areas of our lives, and sometimes it's really with quite disastrous consequences. So it's, I think, very worthwhile to take a look at this and explore this. I'll just mention a few of the more prevalent concepts which are common in our lives. I mean, one is the concept, you know, we could call it the concept of place. And we just look at the, the earth today, you know, just divided up into all of these countries and nations and the conflicts that come from strong investment in those boundaries. You know, a huge amount of difficulty. One of the inspiring things, you know, when reading of the astronauts who first went into space, and some of them really described an almost mystical experience of for the first time seeing the earth as a whole. You know, from space they weren't seeing boundaries, they weren't seeing countries. They were seeing the earth, the unity of it. The earth itself doesn't have these divisions. We have created them through our concepts. Sometimes the attachment to these concepts take on ridiculous proportions. One of the, one of the times I was in India, you know, practicing for some years at a time, anybody who's traveled you know, extensively knows that sooner or later one runs into visa problems of one kind or another. Well, I had been in India a long time, and I got in the mail this notice. It's called the Quit India Notice. You know, the visas, your visa's up, you need to quit India. Okay, I tried to do what I could, but I, I needed to leave. So I'm at the airport, ready to leave, and they say, you don't have a permission to leave slip. <laughs> So I was like caught in visa purgatory. <laughs> you know, <laughs> had the quit India, but not the permission to leave. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's just concepts. I mean, we have, and another concept that probably touches us more deeply than visa purgatory is the concept of ownership. You know, we have the idea that we own things. But what does ownership actually mean? What could it mean? Mark Twain once wrote a story about horse traders in Russia. He told the whole story from the horse's point of view. And the horses had no idea they were owned by anybody. They were simply in relationship to various human beings. Some were kind, some were cruel. You know, they moved around, but the concept of ownership was not in the horse's mind, at least according to Mark Twain. And yet, this concept can be so powerfully destructive at times when you think of kind of the devastation of colonialism. You know, just the idea that one country can own another country and then exploit it. Or the tragedy of slavery, you know, which is still going on today. The idea that one person can own another person. This is, this is a concept run amok. You know, and we see the, the disastrous results of this. Bring it down to a level more immediate, you know, maybe for some of us. You know, we might think, well, we're not so caught up in this concept of ownership. We know it's just a concept. But how would you feel if you came into the hall and somebody was sitting in your seat? I'll bet there would be a moment, <laughs> you know, of the month. What are they doing in my seat, my space, my cushion? The Buddha said that we can't even be said to own this mind and body 
much less anything else. So we want to see how the concept is used in our lives, how we're using it, whether it's in some helpful way or not, whether it's in a really destructive way. Concepts of place, of time, of ownership. Concept of time, which I mentioned briefly last week. Powerful conditioning in our lives. We carry past and future on our shoulders through our lives. It's like great mountains that we carry, weighed down, burdened by this notion of past, this notion of future. And we walk through our lives like that. I hope you've had the chance to investigate, you know, somewhat, how everything we're calling past or calling future is experienced only as a thought in the moment. That's all that's happening. And then we're creating a concept about these different categories of thought, building a whole reality in our minds, and then burdened by it. Very instructive to see the conceptual nature of past and future. On a more subtle level, we can see how we create the concept of present, not only past and future. And this really undercuts a good part of our Dharma practice instruction. Live in the present, stay in the present, be attentive to the present. Well, the present also is a concept. You know, we can become attached or fixated on the present moment. There's a teaching from the Dhammapada. And if we hear it in the right way, we could get enlightened with this teaching. So, get ready. <laughs> because it's just, it just, where the Buddha said, let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present and cross over to the further shore. With the mind wholly liberated, you go beyond birth and death. Let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present. We create concepts of place, of ownership, of time, and these are all These are all concepts that are operative in our lives. We're living in these realities. There's the concept of self-image. You know, we create all kinds of images of ourselves and then live confined in that particular construct. You know, how we present ourselves to others, how we present ourselves to ourselves. When I was in the third grade, little third grade story, you know, we had the visiting music teacher come in. So this music teacher comes in, and everybody's singing, and she says to me, Joseph, just mouth the words. (laughs) It was a sentiment reinforced over the years by many of my friends. (laughs) But it created this whole thing, as you can well imagine, you know, about the self-image, about singing. Especially in a group, even though I really quite like to sing. So then I was in Naropa Institute in 74, 75, you know, and it was kind of this big Buddhist New Age event. And there was a class being offered called The Natural Voice, I thought, okay, kind of new age singing class. So this is for me. You know, I'll just go and I'll find my natural voice. And the teacher was great. You know, and I was having a really good time. And one day he was sick, and there was a substitute teacher that came in. <laughs> and she was teaching, or trying to, Balkan folk singing. <laughs> and she had us kind of line up, you know, kind of in a circle, 
and she would sing a note, and then one by one we were supposed to sing it back to her. I knew I was in very big trouble. (laughs) So we're going around, and I'm, (laughs) don't come to me. She came to me, she sings some Balkan note. (laughs) I do something back. I mean, (laughs) it wasn't even in the ballpark. (laughs) And she was very persistent. So she did it again, I did it again. (laughs) I don't quite remember how it all ended, but not very happily. And it's just reflective of how so much of the difficulty, at least internally, regardless of what notes actually came out, were just conditioned by this deeply held self-image. You know, oh, I can't do this. I can't sing. You know, and then kind of the limitation of that concept. Self-image is the concepts, the self-image concepts we have are really all about conceit, that factor I mentioned the other morning. The conceit of I am. I am this, I am that, in comparison to other people. It leads to a lot of self-judgment, it leads to judgment of others. And there's a lot of spiritual self-images And even from one hour to the next, they can change, just as an example. You know, maybe you're doing some walking meditation and you're really into slow walking, just lifting and moving, placing very carefully, very meticulously, and somebody comes walking by very quickly. Why can't they be more mindful? You know, why don't they slow down? Why aren't they paying attention? And then at another time, maybe you're trying to get through a doorway, you know, something, and you're behind somebody who's going really slow, you know, and you're impatient. Why are they showing off? Why do they have to be so slow? It's just the mind creating all of these concepts leading to all of these kinds of judgments about ourselves, about others. There are concepts about things we even think are more basic than self-image. You know, things we take to really be real, like age or gender or race or culture. You know, well, these things really are who we are. But it's very interesting to look more deeply and to see the conceptual nature even of these things. Now, what color is your mind? Is it black? Is it white? Is it yellow? How old is your breath? Oh, my breath is 59 years old. You know, is the pain in your knee male or female? Is anger or love or joy or happiness, is that Burmese or Tibetan or Japanese or American? These are qualities that are underneath this level of concept. And it's not to say that these concepts don't point to differences in experience, because obviously they do. You know, they're pointing out different things. But if we become identified with and attached to the concepts, solidifying our sense of ourselves in them, of who we are, and when we don't connect with the fundamental realities underneath, it simply becomes the cause of tremendous conflict, divisiveness, separateness, you know, and we see this we see this so often in the great suffering of racial discrimination. 
We see it in sexism. We see it in ageism. You know, whenever we're identifying in one way or another with a concept of who we are and not seeing the underlying common realities, it becomes the source of tremendous suffering for ourselves and for others. The deepest conditioning we have, the concept which we hold the most tightly and is at the root cause of so much suffering, is the attachment we have to the concept of self, to the concept of I. We create a reference point for all experience. The idea that there is someone behind experience to whom the experience is happening. And we call that reference point self. So it's everything refers back to this concept of I. I'm thinking, I'm seeing, I'm feeling, I'm hearing, I'm tasting. We have created that concept through this reference point this idea that there's someone behind experience to whom the experience is happening. And then we call that mental creation, that mental construct self, we call that I. The Buddhist teachings, and this is the radical change of perspective, sees things quite differently. So I'd like to give three different examples of a way of understanding how we can be in experience without that reference point of self. And there are three, three common, common examples. One is that of a mosaic. You know, you've probably at different times seen, seen a mosaic where there's an appearance of something, you know, maybe a man or a woman or there's an appearance of something that arises because of all these little pieces of whatever the material happens to be, tile or glass. They're arranged in a certain way, and because of the pattern of the, the pieces, there's an appearance that arises, and then we see man, we see woman, we see building. But actually all that's there are these elements arranged in a particular pattern. There's no man there, there's no woman, there's no self. Or you might think of a rainbow. You know, you go out after a storm and then the sun comes out and you see a rainbow and our first response to the rainbow, you know, how beautiful it is. But what is a rainbow? Is a rainbow some existing thing in itself? No, a rainbow is an appearance when certain conditions come together of light, of moisture, of air. And I don't, I don't know all the conditions, but basically those. Now, those conditions come together. There's an appearance of a rainbow, but the rainbow is not some existing thing independent of those conditions. The rainbow is an appearance arising out of the conditions. A last example. This is my favorite. I've been using this for 35 years. (laughs) Some of you have heard it for 35 years. (laughs) The Big Dipper. Okay, on a clear night, (laughs) you go outside, you look up in the sky. I'm sure most of you can recognize the constellation, the Big Dipper. You know, it's pretty pretty predominant. Okay, midterm exam. Is there really a Big Dipper up there? (laughs) There's no Big Dipper. (laughs) What we're seeing are points of light which we're putting on already the concept stars, you know, the, and, and the points of light might actually be, I don't know, those particular stars, but often we're seeing lights where the star is not, no longer even there. 
So we're seeing these points of light in a certain pattern. We create a concept Big Dipper. And it's a useful concept. As with all of the ones I've talked about, the reason we've created them is because they're useful at times. But we need to be able to discern or discriminate between the usefulness of the concept and not taking it to be the reality of what we're experiencing. It's a mental construct. So self is like Big Dipper. Self or I or Joseph. It's like Big Dipper, it's like Rainbow, it's like the appearance of a mosaic. There's an appearance of self because of the pattern of mind-body elements, mental, physical elements. They're arising in a certain pattern. We give a concept to the recognition of the pattern I, mine, Joseph, self. But then we get deceived into thinking that the I or the self or Joseph is something, some substantial existing thing independent of the changing elements, of the points of light of the constellation, of the conditions of the rainbow. There's nothing apart, there's no self, there's no I apart from these elements. Now, just going back to the Big Dipper for a minute. As an experiment, go out at night, you know, when it's clear, look up, and see if it's possible not to see the Big Dipper. It's really difficult. We have been so conditioned to see in a certain way that when we look up at the sky, Big Dipper is right there. And what does that do? I mean... It has some usefulness because actually from the Big Dipper you can find the North Star and you can navigate if you're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. (laughs) But another function of the concept is that it separates those stars from all the other stars in the sky. It's the concept which actually creates the separation. And it's very difficult not to see Big Dipper and just to see the unity of the night sky. Well, if it's that difficult not to see Big Dipper, you can imagine how difficult it is not to see, not to experience the sense of self, the sense of I, because it's so deeply, this concept is so deeply held. We viewed it this way for so long. And so this is our practice. Our practice is to begin to drop out of the level of concept and into the level of direct experience. So this is a critical shift in our meditation practice. Now there there comes a time when through our mindfulness, through our attention to just what's happening, we begin to experiencing things, to experience things directly, not through the veil of concept, of mental construct. There's a Native American novelist and writer, her name is Louise Erdrich, and she just wrote these lines, not particularly, I think, about meditation, but just about her life experience. It so beautifully expresses this level shift that's so important. She wrote, those powerful moments of true knowledge which we paper over with daily life, but every so often something shatters like ice and we fall into the river of our own existence. We are aware. That's such a beautiful image Something shattering like ice, and we fall into the river of our own existence. We are aware. Falling out of this realm of concept. So the Buddha spoke of four realities that we can experience directly. I just want to touch on these, because it points to the level of practice that actually makes freedom possible. The first 
arena of direct experience is that of the physical elements, the material elements. So this whole physical world, you know, the physical body and the physical world outside the material world, these are made up of the elements and they're described, you know, in many different ways in different systems, whether it's, you know, the ancient system of earth, air, fire, water elements expressing different qualities or the descriptions of modern science. doesn't matter. They're all descriptions of the elements that we can actually feel. And we go from the image or the form of the body, the sense of the body as being something solid, as being me, as being self. And in our, our meditation, as you've experienced, I think, quite often, we begin to drop into the body as an energy field of changing sensations. Begin to see that on that level, there's no body, there's no head, there's no shoulders, there's no back, there's no knees, there's no legs. We do not feel our knees. There's no sensation called knee. What we're experiencing is tightness, is pressure, is burning, is vibration, is pulsing. These are the actual sensations that are being felt. Then we put a concept on that knee, back. Why it's so important to drop into the level of sensation is because on the level of concept, we are not seeing the truth of change. Concepts don't change. We use the same word. I have a leg today, a leg tomorrow, a leg the next day. Leg, the word leg, the concept leg doesn't change. And so we get caught in the illusion that the reality doesn't change. But as soon as we drop in to the level of direct experience, of the sensations that we're feeling, the truth of change becomes immediately apparent. So this is a very important shift that happens. As long as we're attached to the concept of body, it has some pretty striking consequences. First, we get very attached to the notion, this is my body. We get very attached to the bodies of other people. And because of this attachment and a consequence of it, there's very often a very deeply held fear of death. What is it that dies? The body dies. Because we're taking the body to be self. Because we're not seeing, we're not feeling it on the changing energy level, the momentariness, but attached to the concept. So then we live with this fear. Ramana Maharshi had some apt words. He was a great saint, one of the greatest Indian sages of the last century. He said, to identify with the body and yet seek happiness is like attempting to cross a river on the back of an alligator. It's not going to (laughs) work. So the first arena of direct experience are just the, the bare physical elements that we experience as changing sensations. The second direct experience we can have, second reality which we can touch, is that of consciousness. Now consciousness is the knowing faculty. And there's seeing consciousness, hearing consciousness, tasting, smelling, touching, thinking. So it's the consciousness, it's the knowing of these different objects. And we begin to see that in every moment, all that's really there is a paired progression of knowing an object. That's what's happening moment to moment. 
There's the knowing of a sight, a knowing of a sound, a knowing of a thought, a knowing of a sensation. Moment after moment, there's this progression of knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object. There's no self apart from that. So with all of this, I'm not suggesting that you believe this. This is not, this is not something kind of to hear and to either believe or disbelieve. It's all an invitation to investigate. This, this is the nature of our practice. We want to investigate the reality of our experience and not be caught in the superficiality of our concepts about experience. So how can we, how can we deepen our realization of this knowing an object? In Pali, it's called the insight into nama rupa. Nama is mind, rupa is the physical elements. And this is a very uh, transforming insight because it's the first real taste or glimpse of selflessness where we see that what's really happening in each moment is knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object. There's the rising and the the knowing of the rising, the falling and the knowing of the falling. Know with the in and the out, or lifting, the knowing of the lifting, moving, the knowing of the moving. So just to contrast, you know, as a way of highlighting this distinction between knowing and the object and how they come together, this example is a little bizarre, but I like it. <laughs> kind of if you imagine a corpse just lying here, and somehow its abdomen is being pumped with air and then released. Right. Okay, so there's the rising, falling movement in this corpse. Is there any knowing there? I mean, as far as we can guess. <laughs> Probably not. It's just the physical element. You know, it's just the physical elements of rising and falling. And yet, when we're aware of the rising and falling, there's that physical element and something else, right? because the mind is present. That something else is the knowing faculty. So as a way of understanding this insight into Nama Rupa, this insight into knowing an object, just reflect on the difference between yourself and a corpse. And that will illuminate <laughs> what actually is going on moment after moment. This insight into Nama Rupa and the realization that this is all that is happening moment after moment and that our view of self is a concept which is overlay on top of this knowing an object, this insight is called the first special knowledge of the Dharma. So it's very important because it is the first opening to the realization, to the direct experience of anatta, of selflessness. Okay, so there's the material elements. Second reality is knowing or consciousness. The third reality that we can experience directly is a whole group of qualities that arise in different combinations along with consciousness, which are called mental factors. And these mental factors are the building blocks of emotion, they're the building blocks of mood, of thought, of mind states. Some are wholesome, some are unwholesome, some are ethically neutral. Mindfulness, concentration, wisdom, anger, envy, greed, joy, compassion wisdom, ignorance, all of these are mental factors conditioning the consciousness in their own way. It's like they color consciousness in their particular way. Now we create a strong felt sense of self in every moment that 
is identification with any of these mental factors. Fear arises, joy arises, I'm afraid, I'm happy, I'm angry, I'm sad. The factor arises, it's just expressing its own nature. You know, it's fear that fears, it's joy that joys, it's anger that angers, it's love that loves. Each factor is simply expressing its own nature. But what happens? We jump in, identify with these things, create this whole sense of self, we build a superstructure of self on top of these factors that are simply arising out of momentary conditions. These mental factors, along with consciousness, along with the physical elements, don't belong to anybody. They're just the elements, they're the, they're the tiles of the mosaic, they're the elements of the rainbow, they're the points of light in the sky. There's this constellation of physical elements, of consciousness, of mental factors, all arising, creating a pattern We create a concept about the pattern, we call itself, and we get caught in that attachment. So our practice is dropping down to the level simply of what's arising moment to moment. One of the ways that we can begin to appreciate the impersonal nature of these mental qualities is to see precisely in our experience how they arise out of conditions. This is particularly helpful with emotions. because Emotions is something we most personalize. You can see the physical elements come and go, and even thoughts you know, are easy to, somewhat easier, to see how they arise and pass. But emotions so much feel like their self, feel like who we are. So it's very helpful to see actually how the emotion is conditioned. And what is it conditioned by? Often, our emotions are conditioned by particular thoughts. You know, a thought arises in the mind, and if we're not, very mindful in the moment, the thought just triggers an emotional response. One time I was walking, I was on retreat, and I was walking the loop, and I had this thought, and I was thought about something that was going to happen in the future, and I had some anxiety about it, and it was amazing. The thought came, and my whole body was flooded with this anxious feeling. It's like, I'm really interested. What just happened? So then I purposely had the thought again. I just wanted to see the process. So I had the thought again, and sure enough. (laughs) I think we're a biochemical factory. You know, it's like so impersonal. To the degree that we can see that, see, oh yeah, this emotion is just coming out of that thought. It allows us a little more space not to get identified and just to see it as this unfolding process. We don't have that much control about what arises, but we can practice the wisdom of not identifying with what arises. That's where the freedom is. The Buddha gave some very powerful advice to his son Rahula, who at this time he had become a novice at the age of seven and then fully ordained to 20. And he soon became an arhant. So the advice the Buddha gave to his son Rahula said everything should be seen 
with the eye of wisdom. Namely, this is not mine, this is not I, this is not myself. Very simple, very pointed. Everything in experience, whether it's the physical elements, whether it's the knowing, whether it's the mental factors that arise in different combinations, all the moods and emotions and thoughts, everything should be seen with proper wisdom, the eye of wisdom. This is not mine, this is not I, this is not myself. So sometimes I use that in my practice. You know, sometimes during the day, just as things are coming up, it's almost like using those words as a wisdom mantra. You know, to remind oneself and then to see in that very moment to see what happens in the mind, if there's, that, if there's that moment of release from identification, simply by remembering. Okay, the first three realities, material elements, consciousness, mental factors, the fourth reality, which the Buddha said we can touch directly, is what the Buddha called the unconditioned or Nibbāna, Nibbāna in Pāli, Nirvāna in Sanskrit. And this is the experience of putting out the fires of greed, the fire of hatred, the fire of ignorance, of delusion. Now, it's said that in ancient India, they used the word Nibbāna to refer to a cooling out. And so it was said that in the villages, people would say, Has the after they've cooked rice, has the rice nibbaned? You know, has, has the rice cooled out? And kind of I like that because it's just it's so descriptive of the mind, nibbana being the cooling out of the mind. You know, cooling the fires of the defilements. We can have different experiences of this in our practice, different tastes of nibbana of cooling out. We can see it, you know, on a momentary level when we're watching the mind filled with desire, filled with anger, and then we notice the moment when it goes away. Actually pay attention to those moments because we're getting a taste of the coolness of Nibbana. We're going from the fire of the defilements to a quality of peace. Like we can see it, we can taste the coolness when we're let out of the grip of the identification with our thoughts and emotions. And I'm sure you're very familiar with the experience of being in the grip of a particular thought, and then at a certain point, awareness comes in, oh, just thinking. And it feels like let out of the grip of that identification let out of the grip of selfing. That's a moment of the mind cooling out. We also get a taste of this coolness of Nibbāna at certain stages of insight in the meditation, particularly the stage, it's called the stage of equanimity. And this is a powerful time, this is a powerful place in practice. It's said to resemble the mind of an arhant. You know, so it's, it's quite powerful. The mind has come to this effortless awareness, this effortless choiceless awareness of perfect balance, perfect poise. There's not the slightest moving toward or away from any object. So we're just in this stream of awareness without any movement of mind. So that's a powerful taste of the free mind. And then the last taste of Nibbāna that I'll mention is something which the Buddha called the stilling of all the formations. It's the experience of zero. It's opening to zero. Zero is no thing. And in that sense, it's not just a new experience. It's really the letting go, the stilling of all the formations. 
opening to zero, uproot this deeply held attachment to the concept of self. And so it's a powerful transformation. It's a powerful moment of transformation in our practice. So just as an example of what this zero is, just imagine you're living, think of yourself at home perhaps, and you're living in the living room, a kitchen, a dining room, you're just going about your business, and then all of a sudden, the hum of the refrigerator stops. And before it stopped, we probably didn't even know it was there. It was just going on. But do you remember those moments when all of a sudden, this stillness, this silence. If we think of this whole mind-body process as the hum of the refrigerator, then that moment of stopping, that stillness, that openness, that zero, that peace, we can begin to understand the Buddha's comment when he said, the highest happiness is peace. And what's so interesting is we don't even realize the suffering of the hum until it stops. But in the silence, then we realize the disturbance of what had been going on. Of course, different traditions of Buddhism have many descriptions and ideas about the nature of this stillness, of this peace, of this silence, and has been called by a lot of different names. You know, the unborn, the unformed, the dharmakaya, nibbana, the ultimate peace, stainless beauty, the all good, the womb of the Buddha, the lots of different names, and lots of different ideas about it. Maybe in another talk, you know, we're going to have a talk on the nirvana debates. But what I think is of relevance now is the recognition of the possibility you know, of the mind coming to this direct experience for ourselves. You know, when we get glimpses of something which is beyond our conventional level of understanding, beyond the realm of concepts. You know, when we touch a space, when we touch that space, whatever name you like to call it, of coolness, of silence, of stillness, of zero, when we touch a space in our lives or in our meditation that transforms our vision, of who we are and what the world is. And it's these intimations that we get at different times in our lives that really give a very passionate meaning to the investigation of ultimate truth. Because even though we're not living always in that space, we understand that it's those moments, the understanding of those moments, that give ultimate value to our lives. It becomes the source, or we realize it's the source, of everything we value. I'd just like to close with one teaching from Kalu Rinpoche, who was one of the great Tibetan masters of the last century, He said, and it kind of ties all this together. He said, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality and we are that reality. When we understand this, we see that we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all. Sit for a few minutes.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.